My wife says, are you roasting a chicken in here? <laughs> Is everybody warm? Maybe somebody could go back there and turn the AC on instead of the heat and turn the fans on. Who would have thought? So there was this little boy and he was opening uh, presents and he opened the first one and he goes, it's a king. And then he opens the next one and he says, it's Joseph. Obviously he's opening a nativity scene. And then he opens, he opens the last one and he opens it up and he says, it's baby Jesus in his car seat. That sounds like a good thing to add to a Christmas pageant, doesn't it? Aren't kids great? We need to be sure that we're uh, communicating to them what this season is about. Tomorrow is the day. Uh, tonight, this evening, we're going to continue to prepare our hearts as we reflect on, on Jesus' birth. And tomorrow is the day that we celebrate the day. It's not actually, you know, been years and years from that day. It's a different day. But that's the day that we have chosen to celebrate the day, the day that God came to the earth. The, the day that God came near. Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, you know the scene, right? We, we've watched our children act out the, the nativity for decades. The location is, is Bethlehem. Over 2,000 years ago, Joseph and, and Mary arrived to this little sleepy town in the, the middle of the night. Mary, already feeling the pains of labor, remains on the donkey while Joseph desperately searches for a room at the local inns with no one else, nowhere else to turn, he begs one reluctant innkeeper for any place at all to have this baby. The innkeeper finally relents and, and makes room for them in a tumble-down stable out back of the inn with the cows and other animals, and Mary and Joseph deliver the Savior. Let's look at that account. If you would turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2, if you're not there already. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Notice those discouraging words of the innkeeper. Oh, wait, there is no innkeeper, is there? Now, it's a small point, but for years, I've been wrestling with this. I've been wrestling with, with some of the details that we see in our nativity scenes and that we see in our Christmas pageants every year. And I think... This little detail illustrates that we can sometimes find ourselves reading back into Scripture what isn't actually there. Now, hang with me, <laughs> okay? Uh, in fact, as I researched this, I came across 
a well-known pastor, a well-read pastor, a pastor whom I trust and, and, and even to this day, I read and listen to him. But he even wrote an entire book based on a poem that he wrote himself about the innkeeper who isn't actually in here. Now, the innkeeper has become such a part of the Christmas story that we just assume his presence. And don't get me wrong, I am all for poetic license in movies and Christmas pageants, and, and I get it, there are things that, that we do have to speculate on to fill in the blanks when we're telling a story that, that we read in Scripture because it's not all there. And we have to make assumptions, when we, we have to imply things, um, you know, to fill in those blanks for a biblical story on the big screen. There's been discussions all over the internet about those, you know, uh, current series are, that are out there that are telling the story of Jesus. They, they have to fill in some blanks and they have to make some decisions and they have to make some choices. But, but let's be sure that we know that that is indeed what we're doing when we add the innkeeper as a main character to the story. Because number one this morning in your notes, there is no innkeeper. But I can hear you thinking, I mean, I can see the wheels turning and I knew that some of them would, but, and you're thinking, but it does say that there was no room in the inn. So wouldn't an inn require an innkeeper? That is a good question. But before I answer that question, I want to mention a couple of other questions that have always just popped into my head about this. Think about this. Joseph, where is Joseph returning? It was 90 miles from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He's, he's returning what? To his hometown. He's returning back to where he grew up. And, and it seems to me that, that he would obviously have relatives there, right? In his own hometown. And now, now, when we go on vacation, my, when I take my family on vacation and we're going to drive somewhere, say we're going to drive a great distance and it's going to take several days to get there. My wife hates this, but I do this all the time. I either know somebody who I'm related to on the way to that place that we're going, or if I don't, I c literally call or text my Aunt Isla and say, Aunt Isla, is there anybody that we could stay with on our way to wherever? And... And many times, my family hates it. I love it because I get to catch up on, sometimes with relatives that I didn't even know I had. <laughs> but here's the thing, and, and I don't know if this is every family, it's certainly true of the Anderson family. If somebody needs a place to stay, they're happy to host you. They're happy to have you come. They'll feed you, they'll give you clean sheets, um, a space on their floor if that's all that they have. I have a relative down in Texas who, he, he wasn't home, but he gave me the entry key to his house. I was so glad that it actually worked and I wasn't at the wrong house. <laughs> I mean, fourth cousins, fourth cousins twice removed. They never hesitate. They never hesitate. Yeah, sure, come. And that is exactly what the Middle Eastern culture was like. Right? Even, even today, even more. Hospitality is, a, is one of the top things on their list. They would have accommodated visitors, they, especially family, and even more so, a relative who's pregnant. 
So I always ask this question, why is Joseph and Mary wandering around his hometown, going from inn, hotel to hotel, trying to find a place to stay? Why would they have been left searching? And the answer to that is, they weren't. They weren't. Because the inn is not actually an inn after all. For some reason, scholars, at least up until now, have insisted on keeping the English word in in translating, uh, starting from the King James. It started in the King James Version of the Bible, in. And that word, that word in, what does that invoke in you? <laughs> a place that you rent, that you rent for a night, a, a hotel, a, a commercial place of temporary sleeping, a red roof in, a residence in, a holiday in. And that description is actually a mistranslation of the Greek word. The Greek word is katayuma. Okay, the Greek word only occurs three times in the New Testament. Twice in Luke, here in chapter 2, and then again in Luke 22, verse 11, and then in Mark chapter 14, verse 14. And in both of the other instances, it is describing a guest room or simply a room in which Jesus and his disciples will eat the Passover meal together. Uh, first, let's look at the passage in Mark. It's Mark chapter 14, verse 14. Say to the owner of the house, Jesus says, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room? Katayuma, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And then later in Luke chapter 22, verse 11, Jesus said, and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the katayuma? Guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Now, the King James translates these two passages, this Greek word, katayuma, as guest room, as guest chamber, if you have the King James this morning. The New Living uses guest room, so we must ask why. Why does Luke translate the word katayuma in, in verse 22 as guest room, but Luke actually meant in, in the beginning, in, in chapter 2, that it would mean in. I don't think he did. I really honestly don't think he did. Further evidence to this point is found in Luke chapter 10. When Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, when Jesus tells the parable, we find both the word in and the word innkeeper in our English translations. It is the only place in the New Testament that I can find the actual word innkeeper. Okay, look at it up here, verse, starting in verse 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. This is the Samaritan, of course. Pouring on oil and wine to the guy that was beat up and left by the side of the road to, to die. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Looking after him, he said, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The Greek word that's translated to the English word in, in that passage, is pandokion. It's not katayuma. It's pandokion. And it seems to me 
That if Luke meant for us to think that Joseph and Mary went to inns, he would have used that word, not Catayuma. It's the same book. But he didn't. Instead, he used the same word for guest room. And, and consistent with this, if you are carrying with you in your hands or you are online in your Bible and you're looking at the NIV, which is actually the new NIV, which was updated in 2011, it doesn't say in anymore. It says guest room. So rather than being turned away from hotels, Joseph found his relative's house already filled to the brim with guests who were likely there for the census because everyone came to town and the couple didn't face closed doors. They just had to stay in a lower level in a different place in the house. A place that often housed animals in ancient Israel. I mean, we've seen a few houses like that. My brother-in-law lives next to one um, in, in the McKenna edition. There's this house and they attached a barn to the backside of it and, and I, I don't get it. <laughs> I wouldn't want my horse living across the wall from me. But that exists even in our day, today. Let, let me show you a couple pictures of a couple houses in, in uh, first century Israel. You see, there's a, there's a courtyard, there's an area there where, where there are animals, and then you go inside, that's cut away, there would be walls all around there, and you go in and you, go, you would go up the ladder to the main living area, the eating quarters are, are down there, kind of where the cows are, and they would bring their... Think about this. If, if your animals were super important to you in the first century and you lived in a small town like Bethlehem, you wouldn't want to keep them outside of town because somebody would steal them. Somebody would take them. So they kept them literally in their home at night. They would take them out during the day. They would bring, bring them in at night. And it lowered their heating costs too because the animals would produce heat. Let's look at another. Here's, here's another picture that, that's a little bit different even. Now, I guess size comparison, I don't care about that. Um, I was going to crop that out, but I didn't. Um, these homes of poor families, peasant families who would be in, in Bethlehem were small and plain. Um, they were built of rough stone walls, roofs of woven branches covered with clay. I mean, if, if you see this and you think about it, and then you think about the, when, when the friends brought the paralytic it's like, okay, so those, these people are packed in this sort of this courtyard area down here. And they couldn't get in the door. And, and as, I, as I was thinking about that, and, and, and we were talking about it as staff, I'm like, man, I don't know if I want to talk about this. Because, you know, it's like, why broke what's fit? I mean, why fix what's not broke? Because before you walked in today, you were perfectly fine with innkeeper and inn and, and, and a stable off in the woods. And now I got you thinking, so, so what, what does this change? And I don't think it changes anything other than just those small details. And, and I'm going to talk about that a little, bit long, a little bit further in the message. Because, look, it was still a very humble and peasant-like situation. This home. This is... This, that, that was not a temple. That, that was not a palace. It was a very common home in the day. And, and Jesus was, in fact, laid in a manger. 
They were in the lower level. He was born in the lower level. He was wrapped in cloths and he was placed in a manger. That detail is still, can still be there with the house. Now you think house, you're like, who would have a manger in their house? They would. They did. People still miss the Messiah. They were still all wrapped up in the busyness of life and it was crowded and everybody's trying to do what, what the, the, the ruler is wanting them to do and they're in their hometown and they, they still missed it. We like, to put that on, we like to put that on the innkeeper because he kind of missed it. He didn't see the significance of this. Well, maybe Joseph didn't tell him that Mary was about to birth the Messiah, the Savior of the universe. Knowing that, that it wasn't an inn with an innkeeper, I think is a good reminder for us to not miss the Savior Jesus Christ because we read into Scripture things that aren't there. It, it's just a good reminder that, that we can do that, that we can fill in gaps. And sometimes when we fill those in, they can become inspired or they can become tradition in a church or a denomination. And we are hell-bent on keeping that regardless of whether somebody gives us a good reason to, to think and believe otherwise. Because we've always done it that way. It's a good reminder for us to read the word of God diligently. To, to compare what we know of how we do things with what God's word actually says. Because we, we, we can bring our own rose-colored glasses, we can bring our own opinions and stuff to scripture, and if we're not careful, we read those into it instead of trying to figure out what it actually says. And what I did by, by taking you to that Greek word and the fact pointing out the fact that there's no innkeeper mentioned in that, and I don't, I, I still, why, why did they choose in? Did, were they already doing nativity scenes and that influenced how they translated it into English? I don't know. I don't know. And, and, and even, though extra, even though layers of extras have been added to the true meaning of Christmas from innkeepers to Santa Claus, let's remember that what hap really happened 2,000 years ago is nothing short of astounding. Miraculous. Worthy of worship. Tomorrow we celebrate the historical fact that God came to us as a man. God came near. God came near. Jesus stepped into our world. When he was conceived in Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus willingly took on flesh, fully aware of how his life would turn out. He knew that he'd be in danger from childhood on. He knew it. He knew he'd be mocked and harassed. He knew he, he would be beaten and flogged and crucified, yet he chose to be born. He chose to give up all of his heavenly power and, and availability to come down and confine himself into the body of a human being, to be human. But why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because he loves you. It's because he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That doesn't just apply to his crucifixion. That applies to his leaving heaven too. You know, love makes humans do some pretty amazing things. 
Um, I'm sure you all have your own stories, stories of creativity and romance, stories of sacrifice and hardship, stories of family and relationship, but you know what? God has us all beat. God has us all beat. He humbled himself to become one of us, and then he died on purpose to take away the sin of the world. He surrendered himself to death on a cross, a perfect man, sinless, a sacrificial lamb. He died so that we could live. Philippians 2, 7 and 8, Paul describes it this way. Rather, he made himself, speaking of Jesus, nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What amazing love. What an incredible gift God gives us. And and that's why Jesus came. That's why his birth was necessary. That's why I think, I've not researched this deeply, that's why I think we give gifts at Christmas. It is an act in imitation of the incredible gift and sacrifice that Jesus gave us. So tonight and tomorrow as our Christmas trees sparkle and we hear songs in glory to God, as carols fill up the radio waves, let's remember the real reason why we celebrate Christmas why you are here and why you will come this evening to to hear songs and once again reflect on what Jesus did. Christ, 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's me. And that's you. No matter where you are in your life, no matter how you feel, maybe you are uncomfortable being in a church building this morning, Jesus came to save you. Jesus came to save you. A very, very important piece of where Jesus' birth took place. In that lower area of the house where the animals are kept, in a humble Middle Eastern peasant home is that no matter who you are or what place you find yourself in this life, you can come to Jesus. You can come to Jesus because Jesus is accessible to all. And and we know this because of who Jesus ministered to during his approximately three years in adulthood. Um, um, We read that in the Gospels. Tax collectors and sinners, adulterers, Samaritans, the blind, the hungry, the shunned, the ashamed. Jesus loved them. He, He went to them. He healed them. He forgave their sins. And he died and he rose from the dead for them. And we also know that Jesus is accessible to all because of who his first visitors were just after his birth. Uh, Follow along as I read Luke chapter 2, 8 and following. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find him. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel 
praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. Shepherds, stinky, low-class, socially distant shepherds. It's easy to feel that way, isn't it? Sometimes for, for, for some people, it's much easier in a holiday like this one where everybody's proclaiming peace and joy and hope and all of that and all you can feel is darkness and loneliness and yuck and grief. Lacking confidence, rejection, avoided. I, I, wonder if, if the, I wonder if the shepherds would have been so quick to jump up and go and look and find Jesus if the angel had said they would find him in a palace room in Jerusalem. I, I mean, I'm going to add, no, I don't think so. N not at least right away. Maybe they might want to do some sort of purification thing first so that they can be in the presence of, that's not what they did. That's why I'm saying Jesus is accessible to all and that's why he came where he did the way that he did. So that no one would be able to say, but Jesus didn't come for people like me. Yes, he did. He came for people just like you. No matter what it is you've done or are doing, you may feel dirty and unacceptable. You may feel ashamed and not worth anything. You may feel alone as if you were on a hillside by yourself with a bunch of sheep. You know, I think that's all of us. That's when we are able to actually hear what God is saying to us. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. A Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Glory to God in the highest on whom his favor rests. Jesus is accessible to all. Even me. And even you. Won't you turn to him? Won't, won't you look up and see his face? Won't you believe and trust him to save you and to lead you in the way that you should go? Verse 17, when they had seen him, Jesus, in the manger, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. We would be too, right? Wait, you mean, you mean Jesus came... You mean, you mean the first people that heard the announcement that the Savior had hit the ground, not running, but in a, in a manger, were stinky shepherds? The people on the south side of the tracks? I mean, that's what the Pharisees struggled with, right? Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Fact. The angels said that this was what they were going to find. That's exactly what they found. I read this story on Christmas Eve last year. It's a story that Paul Harvey often told at Christmas time. So if you're willing to listen to him tell it every year, maybe you're willing to listen to me tell it. I can't talk like Paul Harvey, though. But if it's really well here with what I've talked about this morning, it goes like this The man to whom I'm going to introduce you was not a Scrooge. He was a kind of decent, he was a kind, decent, mostly good man, generous to his family, upright in his dealings with other men, but he just didn't believe all that incarnation stuff which the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just didn't make sense and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just couldn't swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. I'm truly Sorry to distress you, he told his wife, but I'm not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He said he'd feel like a hypocrite, that he'd much rather just stay at home, but that he would wait up for them, and so he stayed, and they went to the midnight service. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries, and they got heavier and heavier, and then he went back to his fireside chair and began to read his newspaper Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound, then another, and then another, sort of a thump or a, a thud. At first, he thought someone must be throwing snowballs against his living room window, but when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They'd been caught in the storm and in a desperate search for shelter, had tried to fly through his large landscape window. Well, he couldn't let the poor creatures lie there and freeze, so he remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony that would provide a warm shelter if he could direct the birds to it. <clears throat> Quickly, he put on a coat, galoshes, tramped through the deepening snow to the barn. He opened the doors wide and turned on a light, but the birds didn't come in. He figured food would entice them, so he hurried back to the house, fetched some breadcrumbs, sprinkled them in the snow, making a trail to the, to the yellow-lighted, wide-open doorway of the stable. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs and continued to flap around helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around them and waving his arms. Instead, they scattered in every direction except into the warm, lighted barn. And then he realized that they were afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, I am a strange and terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me that I am not trying to hurt them, but to help them. But how? Because any move he made tended to frighten them, confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. If only I could be a bird, he thought to himself, and mingle with them and speak their language. Then I could tell them not to be afraid. Then I could show them the way to safe, warm to the safe, warm barn. But I would have to be one of them so they could see and hear and understand. And at that moment, the church bells began to ring. 
The sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind. And he stood there listening to the bells. Adeste, Fidelis, O come all ye faithful. Listening to the bells, pealing the glad tidings of Christmas. And he sank to his knees in the snow. And in that moment, he understood. That's why Jesus came. It was the only way. Let's believe him today. Let's trust him today. And, and let's worship him. Let's celebrate his birth. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we sing this final song this morning that the words once again would remind us of those who brought the, the, the news to the shepherds. The first ones on the night of Jesus' birth that were told about anyway that were given the opportunity to go and make confirmation that the Messiah had been born into the world. Jesus, you said that you came not to be served, but to serve. The way you came and the way that you left shows that and, and how and what you did and said between. Help each one of us. Help each one of us to shed those opinions and those things that, that we're holding fast to because we just want them. Help us to trust you and your word and what you teach. And Lord Jesus, I pray that, that many people would would come this evening and, and would hear those that we have invited who, who don't have a relationship with you, Jesus, that they would come and, and celebrate with us and hear the truth, historical truth. And help us to submit to your word, not as sort of filling in the, putting in the things that we want it to say, but but truly trusting it and just coming underneath its authority in our life. Lord Jesus, we celebrate you. We worship you as we sing this final song today in Jesus' name. Amen.